Hi, Gary Zacharias here with a second look at one of my favorite books, one of my favorite authors. Uh, John Lennox wrote Seven Days That Divide the World. And of course, he's talking about the seven days of creation. And boy, if you want to get a controversy going in the Christian circles, all you have to do is mention you have a particular viewpoint on how things got started going back to Genesis and uh, watch people's faces <laughs> and then uh, maybe run for the uh, exit but anyway, so people get pretty worked up over this. I want to look at chapter 4, and uh, maybe this will bring us more back together, if that's the right way to say it, because I think we all agree with this. His chapter title is Human Beings, colon, A Special Creation. And he says there's probably more controversy today over the origin of human beings than the origin of the universe. And so he says, let's talk about the origin of humanity. And he goes back to Genesis 1.27, of course, very famous. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And he, of course, mentions that Jesus put the stamp of his authority on the creation of humankind. Because what does Jesus say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother <clears throat> and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. So he says, uh, Jesus draws attention to the fact that these are the very words of the Creator. He who created them said. So he says, this is just a, a value, of course, uh, shows the value of the marital bond. Now he says, you know, this biblical teaching about us being created in the image of God, he said that's been the foundation of moral values and legislation and human rights. And But he notices, of course, as we all do, that this view is coming under some increasing attack. He said, not just scientists, but he said, even leading ethicists. And he mentions Peter Singer of Princeton University. And it just amazes me. This guy is an ethicist. I mean, he's throwing out ethics. But here's what Singer said. Whatever the future holds, it's likely to prove impossible to restore in full the sanctity of life view. The philosophical foundations of this view have been knocked asunder. We can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings, watch this, this is me talking, we can no longer, he says, base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul. So he said, why should we believe that uh, there's some kind of unique value here? He also uh, quotes John Gray, who's an emeritus professor at the London School of Economics. And he says, over the past 200 years, philosophy has not given up Christianity's cardinal error. Okay, knows what the cardinal error is going to be. The belief that humans are radically different from other animals. Now he says, of course, this, what we're going to here, what we're seeing is the theory of evolution playing out. He says the ethical arguments depend not just on evolutionary theory, but the philosophical extrapolations that you get from it. You start with evolution. As they say, ideas have consequences. And if you start with evolution, you're going to get some philosophical outworkings of that. And so he spends this chapter talking about the biblical view and its implications in this connection. And he says, of all creation, it's only humans, according to the Bible, that are made in God's image. Uh, he says, Genesis affirms that Yes, human life has a chemical base, but it denies this reductionist idea that all we are is just chemistry. We're just not, we're much more than just molecules in motion. And he says that Genesis, by saying that God made man 
out of the dust of the earth, says it seems to be going out of the way to suggest some kind of special creation of event rather than just humans arose kind of out of natural processes or God's special activity out of pre-existing hominids or Neolithic farmers. And that's, of course, the theistic evolution perspective, that it all happened kind of naturally here, and, and God just kind of picked and chose his way through it. And uh, it says the New Testament also supports this understanding of a special creation of man. Now, you think about what we get when it's uh, Jesus' gene genealogy in Luke. It ends up saying, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, and finally it takes it back to Adam, the son of God. And Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Paul specifically mentions making man from the dust of the ground. In 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was made from the earth. A man of dust, the second man is from heaven. So he says there's that huge gulf between inorganic and organic matter that we see in Genesis 3. He said he already noticed that. Genesis uh, day 3, God speaks twice and also on day six. And, and notice the day six, when God speaks more than once, that's the one that says, let us make man. He says, you know, that deliberate repetition is an indication that you cross neither the gulf between non-life and life nor the gulf between animals and humans by just some kind of natural processes. God has to step in. God has to speak his creative word in both instances. So you go from non-life to life, and you go from animals to human beings by some kind of direct God interference, if you call it that. Um, he says the difference between animals and humans is further underscored by what does God do? He assigns to humans in Genesis 1.26 the responsibility of stewardship over these animals. So he said there is no helper that was found fit for any other species. It was just the humans. So I think that's an interesting point that he's brought up. I'll skip ahead a little bit in the chapter here. He says uh, he thinks it's crucial to the theology of salvation that Adam was the first actual member of a human race physically distinct from all the creatures that preceded him. Now, that's not what theistic evolution says. So I think uh, Lennox is kind of setting himself up here in contrast with the, uh, theist theistic evolution. He's even got a appendix in the back here that talks about theistic evolution. So you could take a look at that if you want to. I'm not going to spend the time on it. But he, he spends a lot of time. It's Appendix E. All right, so he says, he says, because of the incarnation, you know, Jesus coming into this world, he says, I don't have any difficulty that the, believing that the human race itself had to begin with a supernatural intervention. So now he moves to probably where some of the controversy still is, the antiquity of humanity. And he says, you go back to Archbishop Usher. That's where a lot of uh, people go to. He had calculations. He regarded the days of creation as days of one earth week. And then he used genealogies given in, Jesus, in Genesis to kind of figure it all out. You know, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so and lived so many years. So he's coming up with something that's pretty recent. And uh, here's the problem, though. Linux says, you take somebody like Kitchen, who's a very well-known scholar. He says, regarding calculations that you use uh, with the genealogies in Genesis, he said, with Hebrew, this is Kitchen now talking, when you look at Hebrew, these father-son sequences could actually represent actually fathers to sons, but they could be a condensation of an originally longer list. So as an example, in the genealogy we get in Matthew 1, it says Jehoram was the father of Uzziah, 
is actually shorthand for Jehoram, who is the father of Ahaziah, who is the father of Joash, who is the father of Amaziah, Amaziah who is the father of Uzziah. So th- there's a lot of collapsing, I guess you could say, in these genealogies. So he said, it's actually, now back to now to Linux, that if you just look at scripture, the dating of the age of humanity is pretty indeterminate. And then he stakes out a position, I think we could all agree on, the earth is younger than the universe, Biological life is younger than the earth, and human life is younger than biological life. All right, then Linux tackles another issue that we see a lot of in the clash between young earth and old earth people. Here's a subtitle, A Theological Objection, colon, Death Before Adam's Sin. He says, we, the idea that the earth may have been around a long time before humans creates for many a theological problem because it means there was death there was death in this world before the entry of sin into the world. Now, where's the problem come from? Well, go back, read uh, Paul in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, okay, you hear that? Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Linux points out, he says, Here, here's the argument that, that's often made. Death is a consequence of human sin, therefore... You couldn't have sin before man sinned. He said, well, uh, he talks about the serpent coming in, and he says, actually, if you take a look, I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. He says, "This. Uh, let's see what Paul is actually talking about and what he's not saying in that passage in Romans. He, Paul is saying death passed to what? The whole human race or the entire world? Just to human beings. Not, not to... Uh, uh, birds and, and and you know other creatures, death passed, it just says it, death passed upon all human beings as a result of Adam's sin. It doesn't say death passed upon all living things. So a scripture is saying human death is a consequence of sin. Now he said, um, what about animals? He said, let's just take an example. What about whales? They're mammals. They don't live on vegetation. Their food is living seafood. So by eating, whales cause death. Did they have some kind of alternative source of food before Adam's sin? He says, hardly. He said, now we've got a problem with predators. Let's take woodpeckers, he says. They have these muscles in their neck that let them peck out insects. He says, and you got snakes. They secrete poisons, and some fish can launch bolts of electricity. If there wasn't any sin... I'm sorry, if there was no death before the first human sin, then what about all those neck muscles and poison sacs and electrical organs and all, did they just pop into existence as a result of that sin? It says that makes sin the trigger of a creation process. That seems pretty odd. And I think he makes a good point there. Um, let's move along then. Let's see here. Um, he, uh, there's no mention of, uh, I'm going to leave it. Oh, he says, Scripture itself leaves open the possibility that animals died before sin entered the world without affecting the fact that human death was a consequence of that sin. As he wraps up this chapter here, um, near, yeah, I'm almost at the end. As he wraps up the chapter, Lennox says, this evidence regarding the antiquity of the universe seems to be pretty recent. We get that from geology and astronomy and cosmology. And he says, uh, the cosmological evidence is actually independent of biology. And so he he said, he thinks it's possible to accept the cosmological evidence without having to commit yourself to the idea of evolution. He says, it's just false 
to suggest that the only alternative to young earth creationism is to accept the Darwinian model. And he's covered that in another book of his called God's Undertaker. And like I said, if you look at Appendix E in this book, he does get into this theistic evolution. So he says, what's the best way forward? Well, here are his, he makes four points at the end of the chapter. He said there are four salient considerations. Number one, he said there really is evidence for an ancient earth. And he said recent creationists should humbly agree that their view is at the moment implausible on scientific grounds alone. They can make common cause with those who reject naturalism, and that would be like old earth creationists, so they can get along with them. Number three, scripture, though it could be interpreted in terms of a young earth, does not require such an interpretation. There are other ways to interpret that. And then number four, and I think this is the most powerful thing to end on, we don't know everything. Humility is often seen in the greatest scientists. It's also a Christian virtue. Yes, I agree with that. And he says uh, right at the very end, just as it was no shame or compromise in the past to have people change their minds about the motion of the earth, for example, he says it's no shame or compromise today for people to change their minds about the age of the earth. So I, I think he's very kind to all positions. I think he sees some problems with theistic evolution, and uh, I did read a book on theistic evolution. I agree with him. Um, I probably come down more strongly. <clears throat> excuse me. I probably come down more strongly on the uh, the old Earth position, but certainly uh, we've got to give a lot of grace and uh, kindness to people that disagree with us. Well, I hope that was helpful, and uh, thanks for listening, and we'll do another podcast soon.